Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here together today. Uh, to everybody here in the West, great to see you. It really is. Uh, to the parents from Millican Weekend, or from Millican's Parents Weekend, we're really glad you're visiting with us today. Everybody in the East as well, it's great to have you. Uh, everybody online, and those of you from Lovington who are worshiping with us today, it's, it's really good to spend some time together in Scripture. If you're unfamiliar with, uh, with who I am, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team. And today we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that's in the, uh, in the book of Joshua. So just a few, way, few pages into the Bible. Before we do that, though, um, I do want to just kind of say a couple of things about some of the stuff going on in the life of our church. You may recall, those who are part of the life of our church, that last December we raised a bunch of money for what we said was a stage-to-stage -stage remodel. Namely, from the edge of this stage all the way through the, the West Auditorium into the lobby, into the cafe, the atrium, and all the way into the East Auditorium. We raised some money and said, we're going to redo it all. And you're going, well, I gave money to that. Why, why, why is it taking so long? Well, it's taken us a little bit longer than we anticipated to figure out furnishings and carpets and colors and everything. Don't fear, it's coming. As a matter of fact, it's coming to an auditorium near you very soon. As a matter of fact, here's the plan. The reason I'm bringing it up today is everything's been ordered, and uh, it's a huge project, thousands upon thousands of dollars, uh, in the tens of thousands of dollars. You can help us save a bunch of money. Well, I'm in for saving money. This is, the, this is the plan. You're thinking you'd like to change the flooring in your house, and you want to know how to do that? We have a learning exercise where you can do that. <laughs> you can come here on a Sunday afternoon real soon, and you can learn how to tear out carpet, all right? So I, we're not quite certain of the date yet, but it will be towards the middle, towards the end of October. Put it on your radar. We're going to need all hands on deck, and it will save a ton of money. All the pews in the West Auditorium have to come out, both on the main floor and the balcony. All the carpet's got to come up. The carpet, in some places in, that we'll be changing, the carpet has been down for 23 years. It's time. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be messy. And you'll fit right in. <laughs> Seriously, if you'd like to know more information, check out the church's website or go to the Connection Point we're, I want, just want you to be aware of this coming. We don't know the exact date. Depends when everything arrives, and we'll put you to work, all right? So um, as I'm stepping in to, to speak to you this, this morning, I do want to bring greetings to you from the Disciple Heritage Fellowship Churches around the country, but specifically last weekend, Leslie and I were in Jacksonville, North Carolina, right out on the coast. Uh, there are seven churches that relate to us out there. Guests, we have a fellowship of 70 churches. Uh, we're the lead of that, of that fellowship. And so throughout the last 18 months, Leslie and I have been on the road quite a bit, visiting those congregations on their behalf. They wanted to bring greetings back, and so I say hello to you from them. Uh, here's a, a brief video of one of the churches we were at on Sunday morning, this lovely, lovely, pristine church. The uh, congregation is about as old as us. I think they're about 180 years old. The church isn't quite that old, but it was a phenomenal space and uh, lovely. They send their greetings along with the other churches. My time on the road is going to be diminishing now after, after doing this for 18 months. Uh, we have a new staff member. Rick Grace is joining us on staff, and Rick and Nancy are going to be on the road. As a matter of fact, they take their first road trip starting this week. They'll be gone for three weeks. So more information about that coming up. But most of all, to say we've counted a privilege to represent you to the 70 churches or more than 70 churches around the nation. And, uh, but I'll tell you, it's really good to be home at this point. So today... 
As we start scripture, I want you to take a look at this photo. Lovely fellows. That's uh, Bobby and Tracy Bogle, not the kind of characters you want to run into in a back alley, right? Think about it. Look at where the photo has been taken. Do you see the barbed wire in the back? They're on the inside. They're not on the outside. They are two brothers in prison. And you want to know, how did two brothers end up in prison? Make note of how they look and how you'd say, man, uh, Tracy Bogle, the guy on the right, was recently interviewed by the Atlantic Magazine in October of last year. And he, he tells the story of why two brothers and their family as a whole seem to have become a factory of criminals. Um, here's the story. He says, you know, crime, he says, is our family's business. It's our family's story. My grandparents, he said, they ran afoul of the law back during the 1920s, during the days of prohibition. They made and ran moonshine. That was what they did. Then they passed along criminal activities to my father. Tracy's father, his name was Rooster. And Rooster, Tracy says, my dad, his favorite pastime was to burglarize people's homes. He wasn't into sports. He wasn't into anything other than he would get his adrenaline from burglarizing homes. And as a matter of fact, for fun, he would teach it to us. And we would go along with him on his business trips to the neighbor's houses. And we would steal chickens, we'd steal cows. I don't know how you get a cow home, by the way. Put, wrap it around your neck. Oh, it's an interesting thing. Oh, it's weird to me, but nonetheless. He said, we learned how to uh, steal mail out of our neighbor's mailboxes in the hopes of finding checks. Th those were our family outings, he said. As a matter of fact, one family outing, he says, that I remember is this. Me and my brothers, dad piled us in the car, and we went down outside, they lived in Oregon, we, we, we went outside Salem to where the state, peni, pe, state penitentiary is, and um, dad had us stand there at the edge of the pen, and this is what he said, boys, when you grow up, this is where you're going to live. And his prophecy came to pass. As a matter of fact, all of Rooster's children, Seven sons and three daughters. All of them were incarcerated. And not for small crimes. In the case of Tracy, 16 years in, the, in, the, in prison because he was found guilty of kidnapping. I mean, it's ugly kidnapping, armed robbery, car theft, and sexual assault. Awful, awful stuff. Fox Butterfield is the guy from the Atlantic magazine that, that, that reported this story. And he interviewed the family and discovered that there are actually 60 family members of the Bogles who have all been convicted of a crime. And in October of last year, they were either in prison, paroled, or um, on probation. 60 of them. And Tracy Bogle says, there's no escape from our family's criminal disease. What is it with families like that? I mean, family traits, are those sorts of things learned? Are they genetic? Why, well, let me, let me, let's bring it home to you. Why is your family like it is? It is, there are odd things in your family, right? Some people go, oh, we're Irish, that's why we're, that's why we're uncontrollable at times. I don't think the Irish like you saying that, as a matter of fact, but nonetheless... But 
some families would say, well, when it comes to the men in our family, the men are always womanizers. None of the men hold to marriage vows and just accept it as such. Come join us. Like, who would want to do that, right? Or some would say, well, our family is prone to addiction. Others might say, well, greed and the, you know, the mighty dollar drive our family's existence and we'll be generous, but only towards somebody who's blood. Beyond that, no way. For us, it's power. We always want to be in control. For us, it's sexual activity. For us, it's, some would say, well, it's just the way we are. We're not very intellectual, you know, in our family. Well, why not? Or others would say, well, it's just us. We are always intellectual. How do you manage your family's traits? How should you? We're going to answer those kinds of questions today as we carry on with our run through Scripture. If you're a guest with us, what we do is we are right now well into, or we're fairly ways into a 13-week overview of the scriptural story. And um, I've got really good news for you. We have more than 500 people reading with us every day. Here's our plan. Five days a week, 10 minutes a day, and we're going to give you the highlights of, of, um, of how to read through the Bible. And if you want to join with us, you can do that by going online and signing up, or you can do it on your, on your smartphone. If you're not in a tech in any way, I want to remind you there are reading plans for each week available at the welcome desks. And so, as we've been making our way through this uh, beginning story, last week, when we finished our time together, Pastor Brian left us with the Hebrew nation escaping slavery in Egypt. And part of that story concludes this way, if you will. They leave Egypt, and they, the people of Israel, they end up in the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years. And then they step into the promised land. The, the, what we would say, you know, the promised land is the area, the geographical area that we would say is modern day Israel for the most part. And as we pick up the story today in Joshua chapter three, the new, the new leader of the nation, Moses has died. The new leader is a fellow of Joshua. He's gonna get his nation of a, a million or so people across the Jordan River into the new land, into the land flowing with milk and honey. Sweetness and, and produce is going to be theirs. Read with me, Joshua chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. So, this is on the day that they actually go into the promised land. When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. The Ark of the Covenant is this box. It's got poles on it, and inside it are the icons and the religious artifacts of the nation. And the priests are carrying all the religious important stuff. And now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. It's one thing to cross the Jordan River, but when it's in flood stage, it's flowing fast and it's wide. And how are they going to get everybody across? Because you're gonna, if you're going to cross, you have to know how to swim. And maybe they, they've been in the wilderness. Maybe they don't know how to swim. And besides which, there's children and there's cattle and, and sheep and donkeys. What's going to happen? So as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water's edge. The water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. So as the, as the priests enter the water, way upstream, the water stops flowing. The, the riverbed in front of them becomes dry. And it was stopped, the water was flowing all the way down to the Sea of Arabah, which is the Dead Sea. It was all cut off. So what happened? The people crossed over opposite Jericho. 
The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan, stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And with that, the nation moves into the promised land. And with that, a turn in the story takes place. Because up until now, you have 430 years of slavery in Egypt. You have 40 years in the wilderness. So we're at 470 years of these people never owning anything, never having any land. And this point is the turning point where the whole rest of the Old Testament, we're going to go on an odyssey now, all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. I want you to take a look at a timeline. Because we're just right now at the end of Moses' life in the 1400s, 1400 years before Jesus was born. And uh, throughout the rest of our time in the Old Testament, we're going to cover from different perspectives all the things that happens until Jesus is born. And we just read where the nation has moved into the promised land. And what you have is tribal families. There were originally 12 sons who were going to make up the nation of Israel, and they have children, 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 until they reach about a million people. But they're, they're known as 12 tribal groups. And in, a, in the short run, here's what happens. Joshua says, we're going to assign a specific space to each of those tribes. We would say, we're going to let all the Illinoisans live in Illinois, and we're going to let all the Missourians live in Missouri. Sort of like that, okay? So they're going to, while there weren't states like we would say that they were, say ours are, but there were defined markers and defined barriers, if you will, from group to group. And in the long run, generalizing, while the whole nation is known as Israel, over a period of generations, the groups of, of tribes in the north, they took, we're banding together and we're going to be known as Israel, and the groups in the south, we're going to be known as Judah. Now, as this development, as this kind of growing nationalism and increased wealth between the north and the south, as it proceeds along, all the individual families now having come from slavery into where they own all this stuff, they own land, they own houses, it begins to produce wealth. And Moses, the original leader, he'd had some, some concerns, if you will, about how they're going to manage owning all these houses in this land. They'd been slaves for 400, 430 years, 40 years in the desert, and now to suddenly have land ownership and personal freedom and it's growing from generation to generation, Moses is concerned, is it going to change the national mood, the national ethos? You could say, how are they going to manage upward mobility? Because in the years prior, they'd been reliant on God for every meal. I mean, they're living from, they're not just living paycheck to paycheck, there's no paycheck. They're reliant on God for every meal, literally. And now they get to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and they don't need God anymore to provide those meals. And Moses put it this way, wondering if the people's spirituality is going to suffer. He says, when your God brings you into the land with large flourishing cities you didn't build, houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Hmm. So when success comes to you, be careful how you manage that because it could impact your spirituality poorly. It raises some questions for me. 
Do you think it might be feasible? Is it possible that our nation's ongoing move away from Judeo-Christian ethos, that, that ethos that we used to have, does that come as a result of our growing wealth, our military power, and our ability to manage technology? Is it feasible that we've accepted an opinion that, man, we no longer need to rely on God? We got all our stuff. That's certainly what happened to the Hebrew people. Perhaps you could discuss that possibility during your family's next meal, maybe at lunch today. Has our nation moved away in moving away from God? Have we moved away from God because we've got so much stuff? Or can I, can I ask you to take it to one step closer if you do put your, your legs under that kitchen table? Perhaps you could ask, has our family's success caused some members to have a diminished interest in Christian spirituality? Now, when I say that, be careful. I'm not slamming success. However you might define it. Remember, God looks at these people who are slaves and says, this isn't good, they own nothing, and they need to be redeemed. And so for God's sake, I want, I want you to live in prosperity. I want you to live in freedom. And he arranges a whole series of events in which they leave, the, leave Egypt. And God's plan all along was to lead them out of slavery, and to take them to the land of milk and honey where everything is sweet and there's lots of produce. So God is not against success. But the question is, what do you do with all that prosperity? And in the case of the people of Israel, they made some really poor choices. See, once they were established and they had these houses they didn't build and the vineyards they didn't plant and they're looking around and going, man, we have got it made. We are, we, we, we are, living, in the, we are living in the lap of luxury. And they began looking around at other nations and they go, what do they have that we don't have? Looking around, they go, well, you know what? Over there, they have a king. We don't have a king. We should get ourselves a king. And that was a really bad choice because you put a king in power, a king needs stuff. A king needs military, needs an army. A king needs a palace. And so the only way the king can pay for that is to say, we're going to start a taxation program. You all are going to give me some of your money. And so the Israelites began to give up some of their personal freedom for the sake of looking like other nations. And we don't do the same, do we? Look down the street and go, okay, well, I'm living in the lap of luxury, but look at what they got. I want that. Here's what happened. Israel moved from a theocracy, a nation depending on God, and they moved to a monarchy where they expected, well, the king's going to protect us. They'd been used to having God's hand of protection over them. But when they set up a king, well, now the king was at times more important than God. And sadly, those who were named king, eventually, more or less, generally speaking, all coming from one family, well, some of the kings were good, but some of the kings, mm -mm, not so good. And family traits began to show up. Evil traits began to appear in the royal family line and it began to impact the whole nation. As a matter of fact, take a look at this slide again. You've got David as the king at 1,000. He's really a strong king. But as these kings began to have children and children and children, and as more evil began to show up, by the time you get to 722, in the northern part, the Assyrians came in and literally wiped out that portion of the nation. We don't know what happened to them. Gone. 
10 tribes gone. In 586, Babylon came along, the Babylonians came along, and carted many, many people in the south off to slavery. You could say it this way, that the result of walking away from God's protection was national chaos and war, imprisonment, slavery. Thousands of people, thousands upon thousands of people died. The, the 10 tri tribes up the north disappeared from the historical record. They're gone. The royal family's story is pretty rough. As you read through scripture, it presents things like incest and murder and idolatry, palace intrigue, and downright moves away from God. The royal family is kind of like the Bogle family we discussed earlier. Do you know? The Bogles had crime basically bred into them one generation after another. And that was eventually the case with the royal families of Israel and Judah. It almost feels genetic, the family traits that show up in the royal line of the people of Israel. Bad traits. I mean, your family has some traits, don't you? I mean, you say, well, that's the way the Kents are, that's the way the Smiths are, that's the way whoever is. And so let me see if I explain it this way. If you're a guest with us today, you, may, you need to know this. I was born and raised in Australia. We lived there till I was 11. Long Australian history. All my family, apart from my immediate family, are there. So from time to time, we've gone to visit them. But it was a long period of time from when we left in 1969 to the first trip we took back to Australia in 2005. Long time. And then in 2011, um, unless I went again, and uh, we spent some time with one of my cousins, his name is Phil. He's married to a woman by the name of 80. Now, I have 34 first cousins, 34. All of them live in Australia, except for one who lives in Great Britain. But everybody else is there. So I hadn't seen Phil for many, many years, since 1969. As a matter of fact, when we were kids, we were the best of friends. We lived in a little town, 10,000 people maybe. We went to school together. He's a couple years older than I am, but we were in school every day together, saw each other. On the weekends, we were in church together. We would hang out on Saturdays and Sundays. The families were very, very tight. And so if you would say, who was your best friend? Phil was my best friend at 10, 11 years of age. Phil, later on, um, in, when we were there in 2011, said, Wayne, you've no idea what it was like standing on the dock down in Sydney and that ship that you guys were on immigrating to Canada and it pulled back like this, and you were going on an adventure, and my best friend was leaving, he said, and I'm left there standing on the dock wondering, what's the rest of my life gonna be like? So we had very little contact. From 1969, when I was 11 years old, we left until 2011. And the plan was, we're gonna go to Australia, we're gonna go stay in Sydney, and we're gonna spend some time, a few days with Phil and Aidy. And so the first day, we're gonna walk the streets of Sydney and see what there is to see. And so we're walking down the streets. You know how it is with a couple, with two couples. You, you, first of all, you're trying to walk four abreast. That doesn't work in a big cosmopolitan city. So you end up two and two. And eventually, it was Phil and, Aidy, Phil, Phil and I at the front, and uh, Leslie and Aidy behind. And they're looking the windows. We're talking, and it's going on for a little while like that until the ladies very excitedly come rushing up to us. We got to tell you guys something. They said. We've been watching you two walk. You two walk exactly alike. When you're walking fast, you look like your brothers. When you're walking slow, you lumber like your brothers. 
You have the same gait. You hold your hands the same way when, when you're walking and when you're gesturing. You guys, there's no doubt that you're blood relatives. It's uncanny. And I think about that. Thousands of miles apart, 42 years apart, and it was clear that we were blood relatives. The family traits were obvious just walking down the streets of Sydney. And I want to ask you this. Are there family traits that you see in your relatives? And for that matter, when it comes to those family traits, what traits are you passing on to the next generation? Are you passing good traits? Or are you helping the next generation learn about Jesus Christ? We have here today the Nolans. Four generations from our church, they're going to read for us the story of the people of Israel and how it worked out for them. Good morning. I'm Dwayne and joined with my mother, Irma. Uh, Mom lives on the family farm near Blue Mound and will be 91 in about a month. And uh, this is my son, Grant, her grandson, and her great-grandson, Hudson. And Hudson will be seven in a few weeks. And Hudson's going to lead us with scripture. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. We have sinned, even as our ancestors did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy. He redeemed them. But they soon forgot what he had done, did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert they gave to into their craving. In the wilderness, they put God to the test. They exchanged, their glorious, they exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshiped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters. Therefore, the Lord was angry with his people and gave them into the hands of the nations. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Yet he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. And out of his great love, he relented. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So this is the third service that the Nolans have done that. And um, after the second service, there was a request that you guys would emulate the Bogle brothers with your shirts off. I, I suggested that probably wouldn't be appropriate. All right. Thanks, guys, for ser- serving us this weekend very much. 
So what you see there, four generations of people passing the story of Jesus to the next. It's great stuff. We recently had a family event here that helped a number of parents say, our family will give godly traits to our children because we don't want to be like the kings of Israel. We want to be certain we pass on God things. And so we had a baby dedication service. And uh, these parents, uh, in, back in the middle of the month, uh, brought their babies and we prayed over them. We heard their stories. And can you congratulate these parents on their great stuff? I can tell you we've had more babies born since the middle of September, and we've got some more probably coming this week, so it's all good. If you have a young child and you've not had an opportunity to dedicate your baby before the Lord, we'd love to get involved in that. Because what they did was they gathered for prayer and uh, said, God, we're going we're gonna to make certain that our, our next generation serves you. But some of you are going, okay, fine, Wayne, but what about the traits? Because you, you've got questions about your family because... You want to know how to lose the traits that dishonor God. You want to avoid your version of the Bogle brothers, and you'd rather be more like the Nolans, or you say, for four generations now, we've been walking with God. You, you, you don't want 60 of your, your relatives to be living in some sort of chaos that is typical of your family. You know, the Bible addresses this issue. It's sometimes known as generational sin. It's what happens in the lives of the kings of the people of Israel. Patterns of particular Behavioral sins that show up in families generation after generation. This comes up many times in Scripture, and we could spend a long time on it today, but I just want to give you one example. From about the time period of Joshua 3, when we read this in the book of Exodus, I, the Lord, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What's with that? My sin's going to go down to the people behind me? But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments? It's quite striking, isn't it? That my sins have an impact on three and four generations down the line? That my sins might show up in my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren? Or, here's another way to think about it, that's going forward, but what about going backwards? Is it feasible that my great-grandparents' sins are showing up in my life? It doesn't seem fair, does it? It feels like a curse. But doesn't that why sometimes we say, well, we're of Irish stock. That's why we're uncontrollable at times. Or isn't that sometimes why we say, well, the men in our family are always womanizers. They don't hold to their marriage vows, get used to it. It's the way it goes. Or our family is prone to addiction and we're just kind of like, that's it. Or, you know, the mighty dollar and greed drive the women of our family. We're used to it. Or for us, it's power. For us, it's sex, whatever. And we go, well, that's just the way it is. Well, I don't like that. What are we going to do about that? How can we break those family generational things that you see in the scriptures? There we have it in, in Exodus chapter 20 saying this could happen. And sure enough, when the kings come along, it happens generation after generation after generation. Is there a family trait within your family that dishonors God? Because if there is, surely it dishonors others as well. How do we stop these bad generational patterns? Particularly, it's one thing if somebody gave it to me, but surely we don't want to pass that along to our great-grandchildren, do we? How do we fix this? Let me give you some ideas. First of all, start with an honest assessment. Review your own tendencies. 
the tendencies of your family. As I said, we're gonna ask you to put your, put your knees under the kitchen table and have a conversation about how's the success impacting us and causing us to turn away from God? Well, one might be that, man, we've got some tendencies within our family that aren't right. You could ask God for help in this. Where are the places you could predict trouble in your generation given your family story of the past? I mean, there are things in my family story, in Leslie's family story, that we've intentionally said, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna be different than the generations before us. So this honest assessment, the Psalms can help us in this. Here's a reasonable prayer to start the assessment with God's help. David says, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Now, maybe you go, man, how am I gonna figure that out? Well, have a chat with a pastor or another spiritual leader, a spouse or a family member, because they may see things that you can't see. They may see traits that you're carrying from generations prior, and they may see how they're moving forward in time as well. And once you have the assessment, then you've gotta go, let's put a name to what this is. Because if I'm gonna be mature, then I have to be honest in both thought and word. Name the struggle. Our family is prone to addiction or our family is prone, prone to chaos. We never have a month where there's not some struggle of some sort. Have you ever noticed that all of our family, they're always angry or all of our family, greed is rampant among us. We don't know how to live generously. We know that's sinful. It's always about control. No one is gonna tell us what to do. What if God wants to tell you what to do? The list could go on of the ways in which these bad traits show up, these sinful things. But once you've named them, and you know what to do next? Repent. Repent for your sins. You can't repent for the ones who were gone with generations before you. But if they've passed on those traits, repentance involves bringing the matter to God. God, I'm sorry for my sin. But not only am I sorry for the way in which I've acted, even if I was influenced by somebody else, I'm sorry that this point in my life, Forgive me, and then I repent, which means to turn around and to not do that behavior any longer. It moves, it, it, repentance is this move away from sinful behavior. It's a trait in our family. That it's a sin in the past that is somehow the rec- replicated in my life, God. And what was their sin has become my sin, but now I'm breaking the trait and the curse. Again, maybe a chat with a friend or a pastor. If it's, like, if it's anger, that's your family trait. Could you have a chat with somebody who could just give you some warning signs of how to respond when things come up and you go, I know I'm gonna get angry here. How am I gonna push away from that anger? Break the pattern. Here's my new behavior. Because I've got some really good news for you, friends. That after the assessment, after naming the sin, and after, pardon me, after assessing and after naming and after repentance, you know what? There's something really cool that Pastor Brian brought to us last week. There is freedom in Jesus Christ. Friend, you are not condemned to follow the pattern of the past. You're not assigned to simply repeat the sins of your great-grandparents. You can make a choice. You're not required to pass those family traits along to your children, your children, and your your grandchildren, and your great-children. I'll say it again. You're not assigned and required to pass family traits to your children, your grandchildren, or your great-grandchildren. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do you know who is inside you? The power and the work of the Holy Spirit is inside you, and you are not condemned. You're, the whole power of the Holy Spirit within you trumps all that stuff. In the name of Jesus Christ. Look again at the passage of Scripture we looked at from Exodus 20, where it says, I, the Lord, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin to the par- of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's the curse, if you will. That's the stuff we don't like. That's like, what? What's going on with that? My great-grandparents, and I could pass it on to my great-grandchildren, but look at what it says. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You got the third and fourth generational problem, but don't stop in the passage of Scripture there. Look at what happens if the sin pattern is broken. God shows his love moving forward to thousands of generations after you. And friend, you can be the one in your family that breaks the cycle. You can be the one that starts a new pattern that says, we will honor God. And as we are honoring God, we're not passing on that ugly stuff to our great-grandkids. We're going to pass on for generations and generations and generations should Jesus continue to tarry. We're going to pass on that we are the people who love God. That's where I'm choosing to live. That's where I'm saying, this is where my family, that's why we read in Scripture, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And we don't care, the Bible, as Joshua says, we don't care how you guys are going to respond to this, but for us, we're going to serve God, me and my household. I'm not choosing a Bogle family approach. 60 relatives convicted of a crime or whatever the trait might be that I have in my family. If you want to chat with me about that personally, I'll be glad to tell you. But instead, I'm going to choose a life approach that is far better. A life approach of seeking and following after God in Jesus Christ, in the power of Jesus Christ. Say, it's there, it's ugly in the past, and if I'm not careful, I'll pass it on, but I'm not going there. I'm breaking the pattern in the name of Jesus. So here's what we're going to do right now. I'm going to pray for you and your family. Whether you're in the we're here in the West, in the East, Lovington, online. I'm going to pray for you and your family that that stuff from the past that you are just sort of inclined to, just because that's your family stuff, let's see that get broken. And then after I pray, I'm going to invite you to stand. The worship team is going to come. And as will be our practice, we're going to invite you forward for prayer. And if you are here today, no one would say, if you don't know Jesus, we'd love to pray with you. That's the case today. We say, your great aunt Bessie's got a situation, you'd like to pray about that, fair enough, we'd like to pray about that. But in addition, if there are situations and settings in your family, you say, I, I want to draw a line in the sand and say, this is who I am and we're serving the Lord going forward. We'd love to pray with you about that. So let me, let's start with me praying for us all together. Father, there are people here, Lord, Myself included. We look in the past and there's a bunch of junk. And some of it, Lord, is really ugly. Some of it, God, is, I mean, to the point where you don't say it publicly. And it's kind of whispered. And we go, man, how did that happen in our family? And we go, and is that, is that sin, Lord, coming to us? Well, I know this, Lord. As for me and my house, we're going to serve you and moving forward to the next thousand generations. I'm, I'm proclaiming, Father, 
that, that we're going to make we're going to make a difference. And Lord, for families here that are, have have stories that are, man, it's complicated and it's weird and it's crazy and there's all kinds of ugliness there. Lord, I'm asking for days of beauty. That with this generation, there'll be new days. There'll be new ways of approaching, walking with you. Lord, for those who don't know you yet and they're trying to figure this all out, I pray you'd give them courage to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, that their life can be changed through repentance. Lord, for those of us who've walked with you for a little while or perhaps for decades, we're affirming again today that we're, we're drawing this line in the sand, that we will honor you in the days ahead. And we ask God that that honoring you would impact our kids and our grandkids, our great-grandkids. Lord, for those who are here today who don't have that generation coming after them in terms of blood relatives, Lord, I pray that you'd help them pour into the lives of the generations coming behind them in ways that are right and true, in ways that encourage in ways that pour out your love and direction to all those generations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.